We've got Dr. Chris Smith, Chair of the Science at University of Cambridge with us, the Naked Scientist. A very good afternoon to you. Hello, Jane. Chris, lots of questions coming in. First one from Luke in Pretoria. Can a lazy eye be corrected? Hello, Luke in Pretoria. The answer is yes, it can. First of all, what's a lazy eye? Well, when we look at something, the brain tries to arrange it so that the conjugate gaze, in other words, the optical axes of both eyes look at the same thing so that the brain gets two images which overlap to an extent. Inputs from each eye are then compared to give you input of the target overlapping in certain parts of the brain so that you can then get a more accurate but also three-dimensional depth of vision. And occasionally, the eye muscles that move the eyes around aren't strong enough and the brain suppresses the input from one eye and tends to use just that one strong eye and ignores the image from the other eye. So there's two ways to fix this. If it's picked up early in children, you can uh, increase the brain's attention to the weaker eye. And in this way, it tends to rely on the weaker eye more, which means it's, it stops ignoring it. But you only have a, a window period in which this works. So you have to do this intervention when you're younger. It's also possible to do things to the muscles around the eye. You can weaken the muscle, which is pulling the eye too much in one direction, so that it moves out a bit more, and that can help to uh, to keep the eyes more parallel. So there's a couple of ways to fix the problem, but the outcomes can be variable, and it depends on how severe the problem was, how long the person has had the problem, and uh, how old they are when you try to intervene. Tamago says uh, he asked you once this question, that uh, when it comes to the dragonfly, the male one attaches its reproductive organ between the head and the body of a female dragonfly. Does this mean the female's Drag the female dragonfly's reproductive organ is between the head and the body. Uh, no, I mean the the way this this works is that the insects will grab hold of each other and then the male will squirt sperms that, that the female then uses to fertilize her eggs when she lays the eggs underneath the leaf. Usually they'll perch on the edge of a, a plant that's an aquatic plant, and then the female puts her uh, egg laying ovipositor underneath a leaf and puts the eggs there with sperm that she's taken from the male when they were coupling in that way. So it's not that the sex organs are there, it's that the sperm is provided to the female to then put with the eggs when she plants them underneath the plant. Okay, KK from Pretoria says, how does epilim treatment, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, to epilepsy affect bone density? Are there any other medications that are related to epilim that do not affect bone density? Well, epilim, I think, is sodium valproate, valproic acid, and it works by increasing the signaling in the brain of an inhibitory transmitter called GABA, which turns down the activity of nerve cells. So by increasing the activity of the inhibitory system in the brain, you reduce the likelihood of certain parts of the brain becoming electrically unstable and triggering a seizure. There are, with any drug, side effects. No drug is without side effects. I'm not familiar with how valproic acid affects bone density and therefore I'd have to come back with that as homework next week. But as I say, no drug is without side effects and it's, and there will always also be what we call idiosyncratic reactions where an individual um, has reactions to a drug that haven't been picked up when 
they were trialed and that kind of thing, because there are specific, very specialist reactions that some people have. I don't know um, about valproic acid in, in relation to bone density on average, though. <laughs> you know, I've, I've listened to you so often. It's the first time I'm interviewing you. And it kind of feels as though I'm not really speaking to a human being. So you've got such access to so much information is quite astounding. Uh, ben has a question for you. He's on the line, Chris. Hi, this is Chris. Go Hello, ahead, Ben. Hello. Yeah, I can hear you. Hi. All right, uh, Chris. Uh, you know, when they bought the tunnel from the United Kingdom to France, they bombarded on their respective countries and worked towards each other. My question to you is, how do they know at what point do they meet? And when they met, they were exact. The same happened with our how train here, which I'm sure you've used. What technology mm. is used to make sure, because it's all underground and in darkness, is it mainly GPS or, that's my question, how did they do this? The answer is really clever mathematics and really, really careful surveying. And it wasn't just the channel tunnel, you're quite right, that when the channel tunnel built between Britain and France was constructed, they met somewhere in the middle, there was a French digging team and an English digging team, and they broke through and they were literally millimetres out when they united the two sides of the tunnels. And it was quite funny because they had a party at the point of union and the British people said they went onto the French side and they found champagne bottles. The French people said they came onto the British side and they found beer bottles with which they'd celebrated. So it just goes to show our standard a bit different when it comes to celebration. But this isn't the first time people have done an amazing tunnelling initiative and got it so spot on. Bazalgette, Joseph Bazalgette, arguably one of the most important engineers of his generation, created the London sewer system and solved a massive problem for London, inevitably solving also a disease problem because until he came along and built the Victorian sewer system in london there was literally sewage running down the streets and the river thames was so disgusting that anyone who went near it let alone set foot in it was destined to catch some horrible disease Bazalgette created the same amazing feat where the tunneling operations to create those sewers met in the middle with really millimeter precision and so the answer is you use really careful reckoning measurements and surveying you take bearings on where you're going to dig. You look at the inclination that you're digging at. You know what the level is. And the uh, historically, people didn't have lasers to do this. They would use water and spirit levels. So you put a surface down and you can look at the level of water because water will follow gravity and will form a level. And so you've got a, a datum, if you like, which tells you what the level is. And you know what your starting point is. And so with very careful maths and surveying, you can use those starting known variables to make sure you go in the right direction. And this is the way it's been done for thousands of years. I hope that answers your question. Thank you very much for that. And I should imagine that we could do with uh, that sort of genius to solve our sewage system here. This is a question that I raised earlier. It's from Patrick. He got in touch with you the other day, but he, he missed you. Um, if it's why is the night temperature different from the day te temperature for example 17 degrees celsius celsius in the evening is much warmer than the 17 degrees celsius during the day which is colder why is that well it's not because the way we measure temperature is with a thermometer what is a thermometer measuring a thermometer is measuring the average energy of the particles 
and 17 degrees is 17 degrees whether it's day or night and it, it's it's the the reason that they will feel different must be partly subjective because if you think well it's a cold 17 degrees versus a warm 17 degrees it's still 17 degrees also what you're doing at the time if you're running around you're going to feel warmer than if you're sitting still that's going to make a difference and also what is the humidity because if the air is much uh, much more humid then the way your body loses heat and and how and in relation to windiness also makes a difference there's a so-called wind chill effect as well where although the temperature is still 17 degrees it may feel a bit colder to you because the air is moving past you faster therefore your body is able to lose heat faster because it's windier and so all these things have to be taken into account but it's not that there's a difference between 17 degrees in the evening and 17 degrees in the daytime it is your experience of that 17 degrees and the and the other conditions that mean that you may or may not feel that it's colder i've had days recently where i thought it feels very very cold but it was only about 8 degrees and then the next day it'll be 10 degrees but feels much warmer and it will be all these factors that make that difference Cabello from Tembisa says, is there an explanation why when I'm sleeping flat on my stomach, I sleep peacefully, but when I'm facing up, I keep on tossing and turning? Well, it's interesting. Different people do have different preferred sleeping positions. Some people are almost obligatory back sleepers. Others like to sleep on their sides. Some really, really prefer to sleep on their front. And it will come down to what you're in the habit of, of doing. And we tend to get, as we're creatures of habit, the most restful sleep when we do the things and put ourselves into the situation that we are habitually used to doing. And so if you tend to sleep on your front and you sleep best on your front and you try to force someone not to, they will sleep more fitfully than if they're in a more relaxed situation, which is more habitually normal for them. And I suspect that's probably the reason. We've got a voice note from Gaddy. Let's listen to that, please. Uh, hi, Jenny. I just heard you saying that it's your first time interviewing uh, Dr. Chris, our scientist, and you just said that it's astonishing for you because he's not a real human being. What did you mean? Like, I am just sitting here thinking, are you, is Chris a robot or what did you mean? <laughs> Please, can you, even if you don't play my voice, you just answer me, please. I just want to be clear on what you just said. Well, I was, I was saying it, it is amazing that he is a human being with that extraordinary knowledge that he has, uh, that he doesn't have to think for a second and it all just comes pouring out. So I guess it was a, an indirect kind of compliment, but thanks very much uh, for that. Um, all right, Dr. Chris, we still got lots of, a lot, lots of questions. I mean, are you a robot? I don't know. Maybe, maybe I've got it wrong. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm chat GPT in disguise. Um, no, as people who've come to our shows in Johannesburg and also in Cape Town know, I am definitely a human being and I, and I do enjoy coming and enjoying South Africa and especially South African red wine as often oh, yes. as I possibly can. Oh, that's so good, isn't it? Okay, so here's a question to you. Why do we, why do we enjoy it so much? What, red wine? Mm. What happens well, to us? Well, there's a number of reasons. One is, of course, what's in it which is the alcohol, and that, to, that tends to be attractive to some. But why do we like bitter flavours? Why do we like complex flavours? We, we have a developed palate. We have a set of flavours that we tend to like, and red wine tends to be really, really good in South Africa because the climate is right, the temperature is right, the soil is right, so you grow the right grapes, and you tend to have the right conditions to get a really big flavour. 
And that's one of the things that sets South African reds apart. Like Australian, other New World reds, they tend to be very big flavour hits. They're less, they're, they're more of an impact than the more sort of nuanced or subtle French wines. And I'm, I sound like I know a lot about wine. I just enjoy drinking it. Mm. But um, the main attraction that we like big flavours and South Africa delivers in spades on, on especially reds. I mean, I'm not, not so, um, up on the white wines from South Africa is I tend to gravitate towards the red wines. I'm sure there are lots of whites that are fantastic mm. as well, but certainly the reds, it's, it's, it, South Africa produces really amazing red wines. And still pretty reasonable when you compare to the rest of the world, but I do understand your gravitation. Okay, here's another question for you. Please explain impetigo. It's a skin condition in adults. What treatment can you use and when will it disappear? Well, impetigo oh, is sorry. an inf- and the most common cause of skin infection is Staphylococcus aureus, or golden staph. And children will often get impetigo because they'll have a little spot or a scratch, often around their mouth, that they'll keep licking or, or picking. And then it gets red and angry, and it develops this golden crust on it, which is why we call it golden staph. And if you swab from that, you very often will grow Staphylococcus aureus. Mm. And this is a, a particularly invasive bacterium. Many of us carry it naturally on our skin, and it's held at bay by the natural defences of the, the intact skin and the immune system. But occasionally it breaks down those defences. For instance, if you have a, a point of injury like a bite or a scratch or a, or a cut or a, a chap in your lip, and that's how it gets in. And once it's into the tissue deeper, the, the bacteria are able to evade the immune response and kill off parts of the immune system and secrete toxins that damage the skin and enable the bacteria to spread, which is why it starts in one place and spreads through the tissue, getting worse and worse. Luckily, unless it's, sta- unless it's a resistant form of the bacterium, they're relatively easy to treat. We often use drugs like fusidic acid, which is a very good, very safe antibiotic that you can put on topically. You, you put that on and, and it normally kills the bacterium. If it's a nasty case or the person has underlying health problems, then we would also give them systemic antibiotics to take usually in pills or syrup, which makes sure that that bacterium isn't going to go any further. But this is very common, especially in little kids. Mm. In fact, I was born with that and I'm happy to say it disappeared and I'm strong and fit. But yes, that was the first time I'd heard of that. Um, Ntinti says Sutherland in the Northern Cape is very different temperatures from the nearest towns. Why is that? Uh, I'm not sure, um, but if there's any difference in temperature or, or local climate, then that must be a reflection on the local geography. And so the, the rule of thumb, and I, I can't speak specifically here because I'm not sure what's being referred to, but in any area, you will experience the weather that you do because of the topography of the land, proximity to water or not, how much solar input there is, cloud cover, prevailing wind, humidity, all of these things will be constrained and dictated by geography, both where you are on the Earth's surface, but more locally, and how that affects local patterns of weather and that affects local conditions. So it's all down to where the land is, what it looks like, what shape it is, and where the sea is, because all those things are the major driver of what we experience as weather. All right. Okay, here's another one for you. Where does chemistry come from? The kind oh, the kind that's romantic to which even each other, people outside of the tour are able to see that the chemistry is there, and they even start adjusting their behavior towards the two. So that sort of passionate chemistry that two people just naturally have. And yeah, where does it come from? Well, um, we know that when two people fall in love, 
that neurochemistry is part and parcel of that. So first of all, you've got to meet the right person. So you tend to meet people that you, you, you're going to get on very well with in the sorts of places that you both like going to. So unsurprisingly, you meet in places where you're both doing something you generally like being or like working on. Therefore, you have common interests, common ground. Then you've got to have uh, that that chemistry where you actually fall in love. And there are some elements of some people that we each find extremely attractive and different people have different tastes. And therefore, we look for different things in people. There are some common things that are common to all elements of attraction. But at the same time, there are some quirks and, and foibles and things that we regard as cute and we tend to like people for. And then you then you actually begin to fall in love with people. The evidence is you actually do become addicted to them because every time you um, experience time with them, you have sex with them and so on, you release into your brain various chemicals which have the effect of reinforcing a set of connections in your brain that mean that when you're with that person, you release more of these pleasure chemicals and this addicts you to them and bonds you to them. And it's really a subversion of the system that bonds mothers to their babies. Because when we have a baby, then it's very important we look after the baby because human babies are completely incapable of looking after themselves. So they need a nurturing parent. And nature has endowed us with a bonding process where when you have a baby, you release into your brain various chemicals, including one called oxytocin, and this has the effect of driving a really strong bond between the mum and the baby. Mm. Well, when two adults get together, they also produce the same bond as a mother and a baby, often using the same or using the same neurochemicals. So this is where chemistry comes from, that having found that person we really like, having then got very close to them, we then drive the same neurochemistry that bonds a mum and her baby, and that's what we call love. Mm, I like that. Uh, to you, if water is transparent, why do clothes get darker when wet? That's Noel from Mondior. Hi, Noel. The reason that clothes get darker, or in fact anything is darker when you make it wet, think of painting a wall. The paint looks darker when it's wet, and then when it dries, it dries a lighter colour. And the reason for this is that when light goes into a wet surface, the water guides the light by a process called refraction, into the surface and then absor and then it becomes absorbed it doesn't come back out so easily but when the paint dries or your shirt dries instead of there being a layer of water to guide the light into the clothing instead you've got lots of reflective surfaces a bit like snow which immediately bounce the light back at your eye rather than guiding the light into the material where it can be absorbed so they tend to reflect more light out when they're dry either paint or clothing and that means they look brighter and whites look whiter and it's all to do therefore with reflection it's how much light is either absorbed or returned to you when you look at it annabelle wants to know why do cows in the eastern cape go to the beach it always looks like they're just chilling there for pleasure well they probably are what happens on the beach well towards the end of a day the land has heated up and that means that there's warm air rising off of the land up above the beach. Cooler air comes in off the ocean. It's called a sea breeze, and it blows in towards the land to replace the air that's going upward of the land surface. So if you're a cow and you've got a big, thick coat and it's hot, you go to the beach and you'll have a nice cooling breeze in the afternoon. Hmm. Okay, well... 
I don't believe you're anything other than a robot, and the only way to disprove that is for us to meet. So I'm going to have to meet you <laughs> next, <laughs> next time you're out here. Dr. Chris, thank you so much. There's still so many questions coming in. Hopefully we will be able to get on 